you would change us more and more into his likeness. We pray that we would not leave here today the way that we came in by your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Joshua chapter 3, you can start finding that place. Um, as much as I love this, and I do, this is, this is great, there's one thing I regret. Um, earlier this week, I asked like six or eight kids from the church to audio record themselves reading Joshua 3 and 4. Ben Bailey took it. Oh man, you guys are getting blasted by the sun. This is great. This is awesome vantage for me, terrible vantage for you. Um, so we'll do our best. Lord, put that behind the cloud again. That'd be great. Um, I asked six or eight kids to read Joshua 3 and 4. Ben Bailey took all those recordings and kind of chopped them up, put them together. And we were going to project the passage as we heard kids from our church read it. We'll try to post that somewhere, uh, church center or something for you guys to hear, but all of you kids did fantastic. It is a long passage, so instead of just reading it straight through, we're gonna look at parts of it as we move our way along. Uh, so Joshua chapter three and chapter four, that's our passage for today. Um, I think I'm gonna do this. Okay, so kids, this, this is going to be my effort to talk to you guys a lot today in this message, which was my plan already, even before I knew we were meeting in the backyard. You guys can actually help the adults remember what it's like to be really excited about something for a long, long, long time. You know what it's like to wait for something, to anticipate something, and your excitement just grows and grows and grows so much you can hardly stand it you know we think of christmas we think of our birthday things like that you know that it's coming you can't wait for it to arrive or maybe there's something you've been like saving your money for and now you're ready to buy it you're excited about it well sometimes you're so excited that it's like all you can think about when somebody's not talking to you or when you don't have to do something else your mind just automatically goes there and our church family, like a lot of these people, experienced that kind of joy yesterday. One of the young ladies in our church got married to a wonderful young man from another church, and there's some people here from, from his church down in Starkville and their former church in northwest Arkansas. And for a long time, Jerusha, the young lady in our church, and Patterson, that young man, had been looking forward to that day. Well, so had we. So we know what it's like. And can you imagine Jerusha and Patterson's excitement Friday evening as they knew the next day this long-awaited moment was finally going to arrive? Well, I think it's hard for us to estimate how excited God's people were in Joshua chapter 3. They did not wait for a year or like Jerusha, about four or five months of engagement. They didn't wait for Christmas or a birthday for 40 years. 
or really you could back up 400 years. You could back up even before that. The promises God made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham to give his people a particular place, a certain land. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had waited for God to fulfill that promise. This is the night. They know it's going to happen the next day. And that's Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Israel is camped right beside the Jordan River. It's about as big at this season of year as the Mississippi River, six blocks from here. Some places it got up to six miles wide in flood season. And they're camped right beside that river, and they know the next day they're going to cross it. They don't know exactly how, but they know they're going to. That's where we're at in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. And so let me just say something real quick about the big picture of Joshua, and then we'll look at this passage. We gave out an outline of Joshua several months ago. I want to encourage you to reacquaint yourself with it. Look at it. It's the outline of every sermon that's coming for the next number of weeks. Today's passage, Joshua 3 and 4, is an exact mirror image of chapter 6. Chapters 3 and 4, the Jordan River stands up. Chapter 6, the Jericho walls fall down. But a lot of the same ideas, the Ark of the Covenant, being a significant feature in both of those places. God's miraculous promise fulfilled through an unsuspecting pattern and means. Priests leading the procession, going in front of the people, which signifies something amazing about how worship is God's means of accomplishing His great work in the world. So many parallels. Well, for today, Joshua chapter 3, I want you to look, especially uh, at verses 1 to 13 for a second. Then the key passage of chapters 3 and 4 is Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. That's where they actually cross the water. That's where we'll focus our attention uh, for most of our time. All right. What did we see last week? Pastor Brian gave us 10 points through Joshua chapter 2 that helped us see how God was leading his people. And the big idea of chapter two is Joshua sent in two spies to the promised land. They were at Rahab's house. God miraculously protected and preserved them through Rahab's intervention. They hid out for three days. They come back to Joshua, I presume. I was going to say we're on the news, but I think that's like a military helicopter. Okay, yeah. Action News 5, or we're being bombed. I don't know. Um, Yeah, so the spies, I presume, swim across the river, make their way back to Joshua, and this is what they say. God told us, through a believing Canaanite woman, that the hearts of all the people have melted before the name of our God and they're all trembling because they already know God has given us the land. Joshua chapter 3, Joshua says, all right, let's go. That's where we pick up. And 
It's Joshua's immediate response. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. What time of day and how quick? Joshua rose early in the morning. And he said, we're going to set out from our campsite. We're going to the Jordan. And we're going to stay there before we cross. Early in the morning, the very next day. And this is what I want to say to you all. Delayed obedience is total disobedience. When God says, let's go, God means, let's go. And it's not for us to deliberate. It's not for us to negotiate. Joshua's pattern of getting up early in the morning to obey is actually a very consistent pattern that you'll find from the beginning to the end of the Bible. One prominent example, all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, that's an interesting way for God to describe Isaac because we know about Ishmael, but he said, God tested Abraham and said to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain, which I will tell you, so Abraham rose early in the morning and obeyed. You can take that same pattern and apply it not only to Abraham, you see it in the lives of all the patriarchs, you see it in the life of Moses, now here in Joshua, and most prominently in the life of the Lord Jesus, the night before he's crucified, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And we find out at 9 o'clock in the morning on Good Friday, the Lord Jesus marched his mighty self to the cross. When God says go, delayed obedience is total disobedience. I want to ask, how is it with you in Christ? How is it with you in obedience? If there's things you know good and well, God's calling you to do because He's written them in His Word, and you're still deliberating, well, am I going to do it my way or God's way? I want you to understand, you are currently in total disobedience. Unless your answer is, yes, Lord. So, that's the pattern we get from Joshua. How is it with the Lord in you today? I remember so many examples like this in Scripture coming to me now. Esther, the day she knows that God's people are going to be exterminated by this horrific, murderous decree. And she says, I'm going to go before the king. And she said, if I perish, I perish. The greatest example of that, again, the Lord Jesus knowing Exactly what's going to happen, not if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish. Now look at verse 5. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now I don't have the authority or the insight to tell you something amazing is going to happen in your life tomorrow. I'm not going to be a false prophet and give you... Uh, you know, whatever your wildest hopes and dreams are and guarantee you they're going to be fulfilled if you'll just believe more. But Joshua had direct insight, divine insight. He didn't know exactly how, I don't believe, because it's unfolded later, but he knew God was going to do something tomorrow. But if I could promise you that your greatest, most God-glorifying prayer would be answered tomorrow morning, for sure, fact. The biggest, greatest, 
grandest, most massive thing you could imagine God doing in your life, I guarantee you will happen tomorrow. And I told you there's one condition. Get holy. Confess all your sin. Get low at the foot of the cross. Tell Jesus you're ready for Him to do His work. You're not going to resist Him anymore. Would you do it? We know Israel camped for three days by the Jordan before they crossed. We have no idea what happened on day two. We know day one. We know day three. They crossed on day three. Day two, we have no information other than get your heart right with God. That's it. Consecrate yourself. Be ready. Consecration is man's part. Where's Tracy? Can you text Stu and Mo and ask them to turn their AC off? Uh, they're not home. <laughs> um, consecration is man's part. Sanctification is God's part. Your part is to make yourself ready. Isaiah talks about our life being a like a highway of holiness that the Lord travels on. When we walk in obedience, you clear out all the clutter, you get out all the sin, you give your heart fully to Christ, and then He comes. This guy knows something. If he gets shocked... There you go. Well done, Byron. Way to go, man. Hey, nuts on that. That's good. That's great. Verse 5, consecrate yourselves because tomorrow, tomorrow, I promise you, you can take it to the bank. God's going to do something amazing for you. Would that incentivize you to get yourself ready? Leviticus says, consecrate yourself. Leviticus chapter 20. Consecrate yourself and be holy. God speaking, because I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm going to put that another way. You will not experience the greatest of God's blessings in your life if you refuse to pursue holiness in your heart. You get that? You can masquerade all day long. You can pretend all your life that you're walking with the Lord and under His favorable blessing and nobody will know it but you and God. But if you will not clear the clutter out of your heart and obey, you cannot enjoy the greatest blessings of all, which is the favorable presence of God, which is where we go next. I want you to see the emphasis on the ark of the Lord. Now I can point you to a bunch, bunch of verses, chapter 3 and 4, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony, a box that symbolized the presence of God. That ark is mentioned 17 times in chapters 3 and 4. 17, 10 times in chapter 3, Seven times in chapter 4, 17 times, what is the Ark of the Covenant? You guys know, it's this special designated piece of furniture that's the most significant possession in all of Israel, covered in gold. It has three items on the inside. It has the Ten Commandments. It has Aaron's rod, a stick that came off of a tree. But it budded, which shows the power of regeneration. God takes dead things and brings life. And it had a bowl of manna. That's what's inside the ark. God is with us. His law, His miraculous love, and His constant provision. On top of it, the mercy seat where the priest would make the sacrifice one time a year, covered by the wings of the angels. This 
box represented the presence of God among his people. 17 times in chapter 3 and 4, you're running in to that Ark of the Covenant. It's a picture of the Lord's presence among his people. Well, Lord, help me say this clear and simple. The reason you should consecrate yourself right now is not mainly because tomorrow God might do you a special favor. The reason, verse 5, you should consecrate yourself right now is because God is closer to you than the chair you're sitting in. His presence is already with you. He's been with you the whole time. You've lived your whole life in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth. You've never escaped Him. When you slip into the shadows to sin, He's there. When you come back to the light, He was already there before you came back. His presence is signified in this ark. That's the significance. And so, Moses would pray earlier, and Joshua learned from him, Lord, we want Your presence more than we want anything else on this side of heaven. Moses prayed, if Your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Otherwise, how will it be known that we are any different than all the peoples on the face of the earth? The distinguishing mark of God's people. There's only one thing. It's the favorable presence of God in our midst. In the Old Covenant, His presence was symbolized by this box. The Ark of the Covenant. In the New Covenant, you're the box. You're the box. Jesus comes and takes up residence in you. And the local church is described on repeat in the New Testament as the dwelling place of God. We're the box. We're the place where God's glory dwells in a unique way, different than all the other places and peoples on the earth. God is specially with us. That's what this covenant, uh, Ark of the Covenant represents. So David would say about God's presence, one thing I have asked of the Lord. I wonder how you would finish that sentence. One thing I'm asking God for, more than anything else, this is what I want. Psalm 27, verse 4. Live, look, love. I want to dwell in your presence all the days of my life. That's live with God all the time. To behold the beauty of the Lord. That's look at God all the time. And to meditate in your temple. That's to fall more in love with God deeper and deeper and deeper. Live, look, love. That's it. I want God's presence all the time. That's what this Ark of the Covenant represents. Amy Carmichael, precious missionary sister to India, didn't come home on furlough for like 40-something years. She never came home. She said, she learned a long time ago, God is my home. She said, we're going to let them pass. By the way, that's why we need a church in downtown Memphis. All right, so Amy Carmichael, who worked with kids who were sold into slavery, 
worked with people who had been abused, battered, more horrific than make our stomach churn. Working with people who had medical conditions that doctors couldn't and wouldn't treat, leper colonies and all that. And she said, all we want, all we need, one thing. What do you think she said? God's ungrieved presence always. That's it. We just need the presence of God more than we need anything else. But we need his ungrieved presence. So Joshua says, consecrate yourself. Tomorrow, God's going to do something amazing among you. And this box that represents his presence was front and center. Now, the action starts to pick up, verses 14 to 17. Israel is ready to cross the Red Sea. But Joshua says... This box is going to be carried by the priest. It's going to go before you. When their feet touch the water, it's going to stand up all the way back to the city of Adam. It's going to stop flowing all the way down to the Dead Sea, the Great Salt Sea. It's going to be a bone-dry riverbed. It's going to look like it's been baked in the sun longer than you've been baking. And it's going to be totally dry. You're not even going to get your fresh, new, white Sunday shoes dirty when you walk across because it's going to be like concrete. As you cross through, it's going to be dry, 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 dry. I think seven times it says dry. But when the Ark of the Covenant goes into the water, don't get close to it. Did you notice if you've read this passage before, God said don't get close to the box? How far behind it are they supposed to stay? Anybody see it? 2,000 cubits. A cubit is from the top of my finger to the end of my elbow. That's a cubit. It's about 18 inches. 2,000 of these. It's half a mile. It's 1,000 yards. It's 10 football fields. Don't get close to the box of God's presence. That's the only instruction He gave them. It's going to show you where to go. It's going to show you how to get there. Why should they not get close to it? I'm glad you asked. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is one answer. Do you remember when the priests were carrying the ark and it started to totter and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark? What happened to him? God killed him. Why? 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his irreverence, and he died before the ark. R.C. Sproul said it so well. Uzzah presumed that his sinful hand was cleaner than the cursed ground. So he tried to stop the ark from falling on the ground. The problem is, man is more corrupt than the corrupt world in which we live. And nobody can touch God's presence without God's special provision. So, stay 2,000 feet away from, uh, 2,000 cubits, stay half a mile. That's from, by the way, here to the bridge in Harbor Town. That's how far behind it you got to be. Don't you get any closer than that? And I wonder how it is with you in God's presence. Do you trifle with His presence? Do you presume that you can just traipse in, still harboring iniquity in your heart? Ask God to do you a few little favors, march back out? Or do you treat His presence with reverence, with awe? Isaiah 66, 2, trembling before the Lord. 
Verse 10. When God is at work among His people, it is evident that He's the one who fulfills all the promises that He made. Verse 10 says, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that He will dispossess from before you all the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. How did the water part? I think one of the main reasons God wanted the people so far from the box is to protect them, but also to protect them from taking any credit for the work that God did. God parted the waters of the Red Sea. God stopped the waters of the Jordan River. And He didn't want anybody close enough to be able to even be accused of being the one that gets the credit for what God alone does. If you walk in His presence, you walk obedient to His calling, you consecrate yourself, you forsake sin, God works powerfully among such people. Verse 13, it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters. The waters will be cut off, which are flowing down from above. They will stand in one heap. Well, here's the big idea. Verse 14 to 17, slow motion. It lets you look at the crossing of the Red Sea from five or six different angles. Look at verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of harvest. Verse 16, the waters which are flowing down from above stood and rose in one heap a great distance from Adam, the city beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. This is the key part. This is what obviously has been anticipated since verse 1. This is what chapter 4 is all about, making a memorial and a monument to worship the God who does such awesome things. So, how many of Israel crossed? All of them. One of the, one of the mighty, massive principles from the beginning to the end of the Bible is if you will link your life with the people of God, then you get to enjoy all the blessings that God gives to His people. But if you want to do it your way, you can't have the God who gives the blessings or the blessings that that God gives. You've got to invest your life and march in lockstep with the saints if you want the blessings that God gives to His people. Now, two things I want you to see happen. After all the nation crossed, Chapter 4, verse 5-8 through eight says two things happen. They set up memorial stones, which they brought across from the riverbed. And number two, the water started flowing again. Now, you may not believe me, especially if you've been around Grace Church for a while. I promise you I'm almost done. I want you to listen to this. Two things happened. They made a memorial. So they would not forget the mighty acts of God. And number two, the water started flowing again. First, when they made this memorial, 
Verse 6 tells us in chapter 4 why they did it. So that when your children ask you later, later, what do these stones mean? You're provoking them to ask you to tell them about the mighty God who did something amazing for you and for all of His people. You tell them, this is verse 6, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. So the sons of Israel took the stones as Joshua commanded, and they set up this memorial. Look down at verse 21 of chapter 4. He said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what are these stones? Then you tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Parents, I got bad news. Our kids can see right through us. They know when our words and our lives don't match. They know better than anybody. They know when we put on the Sunday face and live totally different throughout the week. But one thing the next generation cannot ignore is a life that matches our testimony, that prompts the next generation to keep asking, why do you have this in your life? Why do you do this? What does this memorial mean? Why do you keep reading your Bible? Why do you keep trying to talk to us about this? Whatever your memorial stones are, our kids can see right through us. And for better or worse, they're going to ask us questions about the pattern of our worship. They may not ask out loud, but I guarantee you they'll wonder, why are you so holy on Sunday and so crotchety the rest of the week? They may not say it out loud, but they know. Has it occurred to you that God, being totally sovereign in human salvation, typically saves the children of believers? He's 100% sovereign in salvation. He saves whom, whom He wills, how He wills, when He wills. But ordinarily, He saves the children of believers. Why? Because they see a pile of stones every single day in front of their face that's a testimony to God's miraculous provision that they can't ignore. What do these stones mean? Tell your kids your story. Tell your kids your testimony. Tell your kids your B.C., before Christ, how you met Him, and after. What change He's wrought. These memorial stones. That was the first thing. And the last thing I want to share with you what happened after they set up those memorial stones and set up their camp in the promised land? The waters resumed. Now this is where I close, and you guys are patient, but this is super, super important. you got to be some kind of bold. you got to be super, super confident to march your little self into enemy territory and lock the door behind you. When God brought His people into the promised land, He knew who occupied it. There's six or seven different people groups listed covering the whole territory. 
the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all these people, God knew who was there, and He brought His people in and locked the door behind them. God must have known that it wasn't going to go too well for the enemy that was in the land. Why did that river stand up? Why did God bring His people into the land? Verse 24, chapter 4, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The conclusion of the matter, the purpose for which God did all of this is the Lord your God and His name being feared. There's a little hint in all of this. God causing the river to flow the day that it happened of something greater God would do. I want your eyes to fall on I think it's chapter 3, verse 19. Is that where it says what day it was? What month it was? Alright, 3.19, it was the 10th day of the first month. Well, if I asked you what's the 10th day of the first month, you would say January 10th. Oh, chapter 4, verse 19. Thank you. The 10th day, is that right? 10th day, first month? Uh, yeah. 10th day, first month is not January 10th. It's about March or April. Go read Exodus 12. Go read the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at the cross of Christ. What did God command in Exodus chapter 12 for God's people to do on the, first, on the tenth day of the first month? Sacrifice the Passover lamb. I know another person who God called His only Son. Just like He called Israel in the book of Exodus. Exodus is about God saving His only Son. That's what God calls Israel, my only Son, from this sin-torn world. God took that Son, Israel, and put them in enemy territory. What did Israel do when they crossed the Jordan? They went to sleep. They took a nap. You not only have to be confident to go into enemy territory and lock the door, you've got to be super confident to go into enemy territory and take a nap. They camped for three days. Once they got on the inside at a place called Gilgal, which by the way, became a prominent place of Israel's worship for the rest of their years until God condemned them through other prophets because they paganized it. They turned away from Christ and His glory. I know another only Son of God who went into enemy territory. And after, on the day of Passover, He crossed through this valley all by Himself. He didn't take a nap. They laid His cadaver inside of a tomb and the door was locked. But just like all the Canaanites, had to be shaken in their shoes, Rahab tells us they were. When Israel came in the land, I promise you, Jesus wasn't the one trembling when He got inside the tomb. When His dead body was there and His spirit alive forevermore, you cannot put to death the Prince of Life, what Acts says. When Jesus came emerging from that tomb, 
wasn't just walls of Jericho falling down and parcels of physical dirt getting taken. Joshua is a picture, and I'm not trying to allegorize it. I'm not trying to make it say something it's not about. His name literally means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus' name is Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the true and greater Joshua. And when He crosses into your heart, that's the enemy territory. Go read Ephesians 2. And He begins to emerge with His risen life, bursting forth out of the grave. Then He starts to conquer every opposition to God in your life. He starts to take out every evil regime. He comes in and He takes over. He rearranges the furniture like happened this morning. He changes the locks on the doors. He's in charge. And then He begins to parcel out, book of Joshua chapter 13 to 24, every area of your life to the Lordship of Christ. I think that's what Joshua is ultimately foreshadowing and pointing us to. The Gospel application from Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is when Israel crossed the Promised Land, the same exact thing happened after the Lord Jesus died. God shut the door behind Israel and God shut the door on the tomb of Christ, locked Him inside with the enemy. Then He came bursting forth and every single foe fell in front of His mighty presence. That's what happens when Jesus comes into your life. He enters you, chapters 1 to 8. He conquers you, chapters 9 to 12. And He starts to distribute every little aspect of your heart, chapters 13 to 14, to His Lordship. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. Now Israel's in the promised land. They set up memorial stones. Next week, Lord willing, in somebody's backyard or some building somewhere in Memphis. Stay tuned for further details. Next week, we get the climax of the first part of the book. It's not crossing the river. That's not the, big, that's not the biggest deal in chapters 1 to 8. The biggest, de the biggest deal is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, giving Him glory. Surprise, surprise, surprise. That's what heaven's going to be. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, giving God all the glory. That's next week. Let's pray together. <laughs> oh, Father, thank You so much for these precious people in this bright, sunshiny day. And I pray like Israel camped in Gilgal in the promised land and were amazed at what a God like you can do with people who obey. I pray you'll make this church like that. We look a little bit like them out here in our camping chairs, and I pray, Lord, we would be like them in our heart, trusting you, obeying you, walking with you, and especially, especially looking to Christ who on that Passover Friday is the Lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world. Make it so in our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can stay seated. We're going to sing this chorus that we all know the Gospel song. If you don't know it, Holy God in love became the perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross He took my sin. 
by his dad.